Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. This is a podcast devoted to entrepreneurs, startups, founders, and all things related, and also to the angels, VCs, and uh, family offices and investment firms that keep a close tab on them. We now have two podcasts. This is The Accelerator. We also have The Angel. Check them out on all the major platforms. Rate us, rank us, uh, all, all kinds of things uh, you can do to help us out, share our podcast. We like that too. Um, and we're now getting, we're actually doing really well. We've got um, thousands of emails going out and um, a very high open rate, which I'm thrilled about. So lots of people are starting to listen in and, and catch up to this podcast. Today, we're doing something um, a little different for us. We're usually one-on-one, -on -one, but now um, we are one-on-three with um, Ryan Scott Coles. He's a, a UConn uh, entrepreneurial or rather a professor of entrepreneurship at UConn, University of Connecticut in stores. He also um, is the founder and chief scientist at Daigle Labs. And he's done us the favor. First of all, hello, Ryan. Thanks for being here. Appreciate oh, it. Thank you, Mike. It's exciting to be here. Thank yeah, you and um, um, a very interesting program he's put together um, up in stores. And we are joined by two of his founders, Masil Malem is um, uh, the C CTO of uh, Patent, um, help me out, Pat, I just uh, I just wrote it down. I've got it somewhere. Patent Plus AI. Patent Plus AI, and also Peter Goggins, the founder and CEO of Pisces Atlantic. Thank you both for being here. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you, Michael. Okay, great to be here. We're going to start with you, Professor Coles. I, 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 I love titles, so we'll go with that. Yeah, so, I love uh, it. I'm interested if you could give us, you know, kind of a synopsis of you um, and how you got here. And then um, and then I'll ask about the very interesting stuff going on there. And then we're going to get to the founders. OK, so you you kick us off, Ryan. How, how did you get here? I know you studied organizational management at Cornell. Um, originally, you studied at, at Brigham Young, but what got you interested in all of this startup stuff from an organizational management standpoint? Yeah, I think it, it started with, uh, so 2011, I hopped on a startup and it was international. So international entrepreneurship where you're in a startup, but you've got operations on an international <laughs> level from day one. And this was a volunteerism startup. And we happened to be operating in the Middle East. We were trying to facilitate internships for undergraduates to the Middle East. We were our own independent company. And if you remember about the Middle East in 2011, that's when you had all the revolutions from the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, was, we didn't anticipate that happening, but it happened and we ran our program anyway. But the whole experience kind of opened my eyes about what was needed to try to start a company in general, let alone trying to start a company that was operating in a different, you know, in multiple countries. And I remember we had on our board kind of guys that had their MBA, really typical American business backgrounds. And then we had some sociologists. And when it came time to get the company registered in Jordan, we got conflicting advice. So the guys with MBAs on the board kind of pointed to which government ministries we needed to go to, the paperwork we needed to do. And then these sociologists were like, no, 
Actually, what you need to do is go out into the countryside of Jordan, spend time with the leaders of these Bedouin tribes in these tents with camels, and that'll <laughs> help you get this company legally registered in Jordan. And it was, you know, very weird. And I think mm -hmm. I attribute this, you know, sometimes being young and dumb in entrepreneurship is a good thing. And I, for whatever reason, because I was 24 at the time, whatever reason we decided to follow the sociologist's advice, even though as an American on face value, it sounded weird, but it ended up working. And we ended up being able to get up and running in Jordan a lot more quickly and ahead of other much larger organizations to the point where they were like knocking on our door saying, how the hell did you guys jump us in line? You're this small nobody of a company and you're all in your mid twenties. And that really opened my eyes around culture, power structure, right? Informal power structure, social networks, and how those are structured in a, in a country and how that plays a role in business. And I, that's when I said to myself, I want to understand this better mm -hmm. so that I can help other companies, startup or otherwise, learn how to grow and grow through a strategy of internationalization. And so that's when I picked up doing some doctor work at Cornell and kind of dedicated myself for six years on these types of topics. Mm -hmm. Came to UConn and um, started this lab with the help of Kyle Daigle. He's the COO of GitHub. And I think, Ooh. you know, with Peter and Masili here, you can, I think with some of their stories of what we've been doing, see some of the success that we've had. Yeah. And, and, and you're, you're a professor, so you're, I assume you're teaching courses. Um, and, uh, you also, um, and I think, uh, these guys are part of what you call your foundry. Is that right? So, yeah, that's right. so I teach, uh, I teach an entrepreneurship course, uh, and we, you know, we cover the gambit on coming up with a business idea and getting it off the ground. And then the foundry is the focal point of our lab. That's where we, as a team, take what we learn about starting a business and experiment with building businesses around science and technology breakthroughs. So like in Masil's case with Patent Plus AI, that's AI, uh, but we'll also do other types of science, not just computer science. We'll do uh, biology and environmental science. So like Peter's invention with Pisces Atlantic, right? Yeah, yeah, no, and I should point out you're a professor at the business school, right? So these are MBA candidates, is that right? Uh, Masil and Peter, no, they're graduated. Um, and they, they're, let's see, Masil, yours was, engineering, your undergraduate degree, Peter, environmental science, and then you just finished a master's in engineering in global venturing, right? Okay, great, great. So they're, they're, they've kind of gone through your, your program. Now, Masil, uh, Masil Malam is co-founder and CEO of Patent Plus AI. So uh, Masil, tell us, um, tell us what your company does and also tell us um, I'm assuming it helped to be part of the Yukon Foundry, but help us understand sort of what that process was. But how did, how did you come up with the idea for Patent AI? And um, um, where, where, do you, where do you stand right now? How far have you gotten? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the idea originally uh, came, um, it was born out of a co-op I did when I was a chemical engineering student at Yukon. 
Um, so the co-op, for people who don't know, is just an internship that you do during the school year. So you're maintaining your full-time student status, but you're working full-time, uh, you know, a company or law firm, et cetera. For me, it was working at a company in their um, IP department, so their intellectual property department. And they're like, you know, a chemical engineering company. They make, you know, fibers that go into surgical masks, gowns, oil filters, stuff like that. So I remember I was just procrastinating for my organic chemistry exam once. Didn't want to study. I was tired. So I go through my emails and um, I find like a listing for the co-op looking for PhD chemistry students or law students. And I'm like, why would you ever put those two in the same sentence? It made no sense to me. Uh, but although I was studying chemical engineering, I loved law since I was a little boy, always wanted to go to law school. So long story short, I discovered the world of intellectual property and immediately fell in love with it. Um, during the job, uh, one of the biggest tasks that um, I was responsible for was patent searching or prior art searching. And it's an integral part of the you know whole legal system when it comes to um, you know making inventions and protecting your intellectual property. And uh, it's very difficult to do. Patent searching you'll have to do for any invention if you want to you know, make, use, or sell it in a particular um, jurisdiction. Uh, you have to do it if you want to like, you know, invalidate a foreign patent of a competitor, uh, you know, you know, without getting into too much details. But it's very difficult to do. And what we used to do in our company is either outsource or do it um, internally, in-house. And um, uh, Outsourcing tends to be a bit like it takes a long time, two to three weeks. People who are doing the patent searching when you outsource are not technical experts of the invention. They're just, you know, data scientists. They just throw, you know, you know, uh, human hours at the problem. Um, In-house searching takes also a long time, but it's also very tedious, you know, and you have other things to do. So uh, me and my best friend, Jake, we also met, you know, engineering house, learning community, freshman year at UConn. A uh, big, big passion about um, AI and technology innovation. And uh, yeah, we decided to found a company to use AI to at first help people with patent searching. But now we're fully fledged on towards the path of completely automating the process or as much as we can and having AI perform the patent search, give you the report, and then let you, you know strategize and move forward after that. And what, where, where, does company, where does the company stand now in terms of uh, progress, customers, traction, stage? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the stage that we're in right now, probably best defined as uh, beta testing. So we have three uh, pilot programs that we're doing with, uh, with potential clients. Uh, we're get, making reports for them, uh, doing projects for them, and then, uh, you know, go over accuracy, update things, because it's a very mm -hmm. difficult process. And mm -hmm. although the technology is there, uh, it, there's a lot of due diligence that has to be done because the decisions that are made uh, after the patent search reports are generated are, you know, very impactful. So we want to make sure that the accuracy is as good as possible uh, before, you know, uh, we proceed. So we're being cautious and, and careful because at the end of the day, we are dealing with people's intellectual property. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, amazing. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. It's pretty amazing what's been built. Uh, Masil, it typically takes what three weeks for yes, someone sir. to get a patent search report back, and three weeks and how much was it? Um, bare minimum five hundred, most likely a thousand dollars, and three weeks of wait to get a report. We can do it in three hours. Wow, that's great. That's great. Yeah. 
I'm going to tell my wife she was the general counsel at ASCAP, the music uh, uh, public performance rights uh, um, okay. uh, nonprofit. And uh, she actually went all over the world negotiating digital rights. Um, and to my great dismay, she's no longer in IP and is now in real estate. Uh, but um, what an interesting time to be in IP. Um, I felt that way even before uh, ChatGPT came out. Um, yeah. And now, of course, you know all the all the uh, turmoil that's caused. Now, let me ask Peter. Peter Goggins is a founder and CEO of Pisces um, Atlantic. Um, and uh, it is also coming out of this uh, Yukon program. Um, Peter, uh, tell us what your company does and, and what kind of progress you're making. Yeah, uh, we manufacture uh, high-tech, uh, sustainably produced, fish meal-free fish feeds. <clears throat> so okay, let me stop, stop for a second. Fish, fish meal-free fish feeds. Correct. Yes. Um, Sorry, that's five times, uh, five times fast. Fish meal free. <laughs> Feel fish. Free meal. So yeah. you feed fish. You feed fish without feed fish. giving them fish. No. Yeah. So yeah, that's a actually. small fact, right? Not many people know. Yes. Is that uh, right? Feel free to ask Masil. Uh, he's my Arabic translator, and uh, I'm pretty sure that most of the hair on his head is going to be missing by the time we stop working together, <laughs> due to the difficulties of translating those sort of phrases into different languages. Yeah, so so it's um, you're feeding fish, and what instead of, you, you told us what it isn't, so what is it? What are, what are you using yeah. to feed fish? We use all sorts of emerging protein sources. So that includes um, uh, yeast byproducts, uh, fungal meals, food waste byproducts, um, insect meal is a really big one, brewery waste, stuff like that. Uh, we use that to replace fish meal, which has traditionally been the uh, main component in the feeds used on uh, for farmed fish uh, but due to some resource availability uh, problems that they've run into in the last 10 years or so the price has tripled in that time and what what's the advantage of using your your fish meal rather than than the more traditional style it depends on who you ask but most people are going to cite the price we're very competitive on price is it healthier for the fish is it easier are there other other benefits as well yeah, yeah. The, um, so um, we're the only feed uh, com compared to a fish meal, a feed that contains fish meal. Uh, we're mercury free, right? Because fish meal contains a lot of mercury. Uh, we don't have any. We don't have that same uh, uh, vector in our feeds. Mm -hmm. And if you're um, a lot of fish are farmed for for conservation purposes, right? So they're they're grown by state or federal conservation agencies and then released into the wild. You have um, all sorts of selection bias when you feed juvenile fish in a uh, fish meal when they wouldn't eat that in the wild. So uh, they're there. I mean, again, we can get really technical about it, but it depends on who the customer is and what they're looking for. But generally speaking, price is a big one. And then, um, and, you know, environmental and health concerns are usually pull up the uh, secondary and tertiary spots. And what, what kind of traction have you achieved with the company and what stage are you in? Yeah, we're, we're, I mean, we're well into the commercialization stage, right? So we, um, a couple of years, about a year ago, we started working in, in the context of the foundry. And at that time, we were just sort of uh, beta testing. That's right, you know, getting out of the lab onto the market, learning a little bit about what it was like to try and sell. And we were hitting a bunch of roadblocks, right? Because we were, we were making 100 pound, 100 kilo, all kinds of small trifling sales, no problem, right? And then... It was like, okay, let's, you know, let's scale this up. 
and there was nowhere in the ton, two ton range that we could find. Everybody we talked to is like, yeah, you know, that sound, that product sounds really cool. We use six tons a day. And it was like, wow. we can produce a couple times a month. You know, there was a really big disconnect. And when we started working with the foundry, uh, that's when we started selling abroad. So right now we're working in Egypt, uh, getting started in Oman, Jordan. Jordan was the, the driest country in the world, right? That's where we got started for real. Um, and, you, have um, great connection. you have these great connections to the Bedouins in Jordan, right? So you've got that locked up. Yeah, yeah and then also in, and, and then also in South America, um, from my two years living there. Yeah. Well, wow. that's where, you know, Peter and I recognized, you know, there was this gap in the domestic market. And so you can't jump from here to here. There, we needed to find those clients in between. And that's when, you know, hmm. we had that insight. They're not here. They're in foreign countries. Yeah. So let's go there. And that's, it's kind of classic disruption theory, right? Let's go to these niche markets where we can get traction and then grow. Sure. And, and Brian, um, um, I wanted to, well, I first wanted to ask uh, Peter about the, the, so the stage you're in is you're in commercial, you're, 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 you're a business, you're, you've got customers, you've got product. Um, yep. What's the next step for you? Uh, fulfillment. So we've locked down um, a, just about 10 million USD in sales in the last six months five months. It's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, it, it is. Um, but let, much like Masil, I'm going to be hairless soon uh, in that, I'm, I'm, you know, pulling my hair out because we're in the fulfillment stage, right? You've got all sorts of logistics, um, um, manufacturing, uh, the biggest one is paperwork, um, you know, uh, having products approved for sale in different markets. So um, we're in the thick of it. Yeah. And, and the complexity of that, of that business is, is sounds, sounds staggering. Now, Ryan, what uh, you're, you're um, you know, have this uh, very interesting program at UConn. Uh, you're running a, the labs and the foundry. They're two different things, right? They're they're not the same thing. Well, it's, uh, the foundry is part of Daigle Labs. It's part of the labs. Okay. You know, we do the academic research, but the foundry is where we apply it, right? So we do the research around how to build businesses, and the foundry is where we actually take that knowledge and get and in the trenches and help build some science-based ventures, you know, just for people, you know, it, it, you know, obviously the, the, the notion of a foundry has been around people have heard that word, but how do you define it in the startup? Yeah. yeah. So foundry, I think is an older English word for factory or manufacturing. So a startup foundry is, you know, where you, we are, you know, building or manufacturing startups, right. Turning out startups and some of our projects, are fairly early stage or ground up. So we have some projects in the foundry where we are taking our own published research, trying to build businesses around it or other people's public, you know, published research to try to build businesses around it with them. Or sometimes it's companies like Peter's where, you know, they were operating for five to six years, but, you know, didn't have maybe the social network access to go to these foreign markets and really take off some, you know, I think patent plus AI is another area where it was very, very early stage, much earlier than Pisces, where the key thing was, is, um, you know, they needed quick 20 K to get, for example, the data they needed to build a tool that could actually do full, you know, patent search, right. 
Um, and so we were able to get them, we call them pivot grants, right? Because a lot of times these startups come to these critical moments where mm -hmm. you're not going to get, you're not going to be able to get a loan. You're not going to get an angel investor or a VC to invest yet. Um, but a five, $2,000 grant that you're used to getting at some of typical university programs also isn't enough. You need 20, $25,000, you know, to buy this data set. Right. And those are critical is moments. The pivot, is the pivot grant a Yukon grant? Is it part of your program? How does that work? Yeah. So this is part of the foundry. This is, you know, part of what when we dig in with startups, we're more in the trenches with them. And but part of that is we're able to bring some funds that have a bit more heft to them, you know, because so often really great ideas and really great business ideas, you know, not just a great tool, but they're great business ideas. Mm -hmm don't get off the ground because funding, right? And, you know, it makes sense that a private investor wouldn't throw money at it, right? But if you can get stronger grants behind it, right? Like 25,000 to get that data set and have a coach or a PI that's working with them, you know, in the case of actually making social network connections, flying with them and sitting in, help, you know, with sales calls with them, helping them land clients, um, you know, we can build that pipeline. We can get a company that otherwise might not get off the ground, actually off the ground. So let me, so that's uh, why I like the word foundry, more yeah, involved no, I, in an incubator. It's, it's a, it's an interesting concept. So Masil, in your case, um, what, what would you have done without the foundry is one way of asking this. Would you be here today, Masil? Um, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah, this I think uh, we are a good example of the functionality of the pivot grants because to kind of give you a bit of a more perspective, um, in order to search the patent database, um, obviously you have to have you know access to it. A lot of the patent documents are you know publicly available by definition. A contract is a patent is a contract between you and the government wherein you tell them how you make your invention and they protect it for you. Uh, but it's very difficult to aggregate the patent archives from you know 196 different countries, however many patent jurisdictions, and keep them updated on a day-to-day -day basis. Because these things change, not just when a new patent is filed or granted, but because of litigation and things like that, you have to update the patent database on a regular basis. And you need to have access to everything in a way that is easier for the AI systems to kind of like go through, look at the claims, analyze this, analyze that. We at first, um, before the foundry, uh, bootstrapped and kind of just, you know, used Upwork and, you know, um, interns, student interns in computer science to help us scrape data off of, you know, the USPTO website, for example, to extract that patent information. But it takes a lot of time takes a lot of time and it costs us you know a couple thousand dollars to get it just for america without the updates nowhere else in the world and um yeah but we're using it to test and to search but we could only search in america and and, and peter yeah and if i could just quickly wrap up with the pivot grant yeah um the alternative which is what you know our biggest companies in this industry are doing is use like a service that does all of that data aggregation for you finds it for everywhere in the world organizes it for you and um allows you to access it update it every day etc 
but it cost a lot of money. It was $95,000 for us to be able to basically, you know, finish our R&D and be able to start doing, you know, beta testing and do projects for our, for our customers. And that's where um, Dago Labs came in. And Ryan is like, yeah, if this is kind of the bottleneck, like I will destroy that bottleneck for you and you focus on actually, you know, building the product. Mm -hmm. And we managed to get them down from 95000 to 20000 and the lab, you know, gave us that grant. So we paid, got access to the data, same quality data that, you know, Hatsnap or any big players in the industry are using. Um, and, you know, it allows us to not only build the product well and train it well, but also search on the entire global patent database. And Peter, I have, uh, you know, it's amazing how fast time goes when you have three guests. Um, so um, we're, we're kind of at the end here, but um, at least for this, uh, for this podcast, but Peter, um, you came into the foundry at a much later stage, it sounds like. So what was the, what help did you get? Uh, I mean, for me, the biggest insight was all, or, or the, the, the biggest take was all that work we put into identifying where's there a, like a, a, a mid-sized market, where, where's some place that we can expand to? Because realistically, I spent a year, year and a half banging my head up against a wall, trying to get out of the, you know, 100 kilos there, 100 pounds here and there type type of set, you know, you can't, that's not, that's not productive. That's not going anywhere. So that, that was the, that was definitely the biggest thing for me where it was those flights and those, you know, sit, you know, here, I'm going to sit you down. We're going to work through this meeting together, you know, in, in Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, all, all yeah. sorts of Peru, all sorts of places. Yeah. And Ryan, um, put, put these two fellows, um, these two CEOs, these two founders in the context of your whole program, um, how many uh, companies typically are in the foundry at a given time, and what sort of your ambitions for it moving forward? Yeah, great question, Mike. Right now, we've got five companies that we're working on in the foundry actively, and I'd, I'd love to expand that to where we can consistently support, you know, eight to ten projects. Mm -hmm. um, but my expectation is I like to know that we have at least $25,000 a year to spend on each startup project. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things that are unique. One, we'd like to bring more of a lab logic, you know, viewpoint into our foundry. We are experimenting with building startups, right? And, and so we like to have what we call a lead PI who works with the founders. Um, but that also means we don't have a timetable. So we plan on sometimes, you know, if we want to work with a startup to get it off the ground for one, two or three years, we'll do that. Especially if we get an STTR grant from the U.S. government, we're going to be working with them for a couple of years. So mm -hmm. we like to know that for a project, we can have at least 25K a year to dedicate towards to getting the business ready, where it can go get external funding or even just stand on its own two feet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so our ambition right now is to move to where we can support eight projects um, beyond the five that we have. That, that would be great. And um, um, I think that uh, uh, we'll probably see more programs like this, but, but for, um, for Peter and for Basile, um, is there um, a point where you, you can kind of, um, I don't want to say move on from the foundry, but at, at what, what is the kind of criteria um, for, for graduating from a program like this? Is this a, a lifetime 
relationship? I, I mean, I'm sure it will be in terms of personal terms, but is it is there is there a moment where you kind of um, step away from the the nest? I sh- uh, pardon me, I should use a fish analogy, but I don't know fish. Analogy, you know, where you swim away or whatever, but, but <laughs> I, I'm not even going to try. But uh, is there a point? I'll start with you, Peter. Where where you you'll you'll know it's time, and you'll know you're you're moving on that kind of thing. I think the important context here is to circle back to what Ryan said about this being more of a lab type context than a, a true, say, VC or accelerator, right? Yeah. Because the understanding is always that, like, when you need help, assistance, right, you can circle in and out of the lab as is needed, right? Um, and, you know, obviously for me, you know, the 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 amount of active support needed will decrease, right? As as I get better and better at, at fulfilling these contracts, there'll be fewer and fewer hair on fire moments, like oh my god, it's all about customs, that type of thing, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, a year from now, right? I, I have plans to launch some more R and D, right? And that would probably be a good time to reapproach the lab and say, like, hey, like, you know, we're thinking about launching this new product line. Help us commercialize it. Bring Excellent. it back out to the same yeah. Yeah. That type of thing. Yeah. And how about you, Lucille? How does this yeah, evolve? Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Like Peter said, it, I love the lab analogy. As someone who's done, you know, undergraduate research for like, you know, two years, I think this is the exact kind of philosophy that needs to apply to entrepreneurship to make it more efficient and get, you know, better results and be quicker with things. Um, yeah, I will answer even outside of Pound Plus because Peter kind of addressed that. I also wear like multiple hats in, in the lab. So I'm working as a translator for Ryan, go all the different types of countries, working with Chinese Atlantic and other startups there. Um, so I've, you know, and I work with other startups. So like, you know, whatever kind of intellectual needs I have, the labs fulfills for me. So I'm not going anywhere. Oh, that's great. Uh, so so um, I want to remind our viewers, this is the um, Accelerator Podcast with Michael Conniff. We're on all the major platforms. We're on uh, YouTube and Spotify, both audio and video. Otherwise, Audible, Amazon, uh, Apple, virtually any any kind of platform for, auto, for uh, podcasts you can think of. Make sure to like us, rate us, review us. Um, you can also find out more about me at my website, michaelconniff.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-C-O-N-N-I-F-F.com. And uh, I want to thank our guest today. The time has, uh, has flown by. Um, our guest, Peter Goggins um, from Pisces Atlantic, uh, Masil Malem from um, Patent Plus AI, and, um, and Professor uh, Ryan Scott Coles um, from the University of Connecticut Business School, where he teaches entrepreneurship in many forms. So thank you all for being here. This has been a lot of fun, and I, we'd love to follow up and learn more about you as you move along. So thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. It's thank you, pleasure. Michael. And thank you, everyone, for listening to uh, The Accelerator. Uh, and as I always like to say at the end of these podcasts, we'll be back with another one before you know it. Thanks. <laughs>